please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 34. You can use the Pew Bible ahead in front of you, or you can use your electronic version, the Bible you brought, whatever uh, you have there to keep the text open. Uh, there's too many verses to put on the insert, so please have your Bibles ready at Genesis 34. James Boyce, he wrote, here and there in the Bible we come upon chapters that report such disgraceful deeds that it is difficult to know how to comment or preach on them. The 34th chapter of Genesis is such a chapter, and this is true. Now, Genesis on the whole is a story of the origins that we should be concerned with, the origins of mankind and also the origin of God's unfolding plan for redemption, at least as it unfolds in time and space. Genesis gives us ultimately the foundation for our understanding of the need for Christ to come. It begins this fulfillment of a promise to send a seed from the woman who had crushed the head of the serpent to be the second Adam. Where the first Adam failed, the second Adam will succeed. And Genesis is the foundation for the story of redemption in the Bible. It's so important for everything that comes next. Genesis 12 through 50, the section we're in now, focuses on those first people God calls out from the nations. He's starting to distinguish his people from the nations, but it's a rough ride and it's a difficult task. And we learn of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and a little bit of Joseph during this section. Now, if you were to make up a religion to get people to believe it, you would write an origin story for your heroes of the faith or your founders of the faith that would probably depict them as almost like heroes, whitewashed versions of them, cleaned up, uh, magnanimous people of old that we could look to and inspire to. In fact, if you look at many competing religious systems with Christianity and you read of their stories of those who are leaders, um, they almost they don't read like real people. You're like, this person is just so above everyone else. The Bible, however, doesn't do this because the Bible's true and it's accurate and it's brutally faithful to the history of the matter. When you read the Bible, there ends up only being one hero, and that is God himself. Here we have one of the darker episodes in the book of Genesis, and there's some dark ones. We've seen them already. At the end of chapter 33, you remember Jacob erected an altar that was unto the Lord. But if you remember the full story, he had this wonderful... Um, basically reconciliation with Esau that allowed him to breathe easier. As he was going where? Back to Bethel, where he had met God the first time. And now 20 years had elapsed, and he's going back to Bethel, like God told him to do. He wrestled with God, and God told him as a result, go up back to the place of your forefathers, to Bethel, the house of the Lord, where I met you first. And he starts out on his pilgrimage, which is not just a physical pilgrimage, it's a spiritual one. He's going to take his family and his growing clan, and they're going to move on up. Now Esau is not an issue. Let's go back to Bethel, where Isaac is, and where the growing clan of the, new, the newly named Jacob, who's now Israel, where he will be, and the nation will spring up from there. So Jacob, with great vigor, uh, goes up towards Bethel, but he stalls. He doesn't go to Bethel. He looks around at Shechem and says, this is not a bad place to live. It's close enough. 
I think I'm going to stay here. And he builds barns and he builds stalls for his animals and he buys property and he looks around and sees the commerce and the trade and this is a pretty good place to be. I'll stay here for a little while. He stalls on his pilgrimage and he finds himself now in Shechem for some 10 years, it seems. The end of chapter 33 shows him building this altar to the Lord, but that does not hide his disobedience, his lack of going all the way home as he should have. It's no wonder that the name of God is not mentioned in chapter 34. Here now as I read God's holy word, this is Genesis 34. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. And when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. And his soul was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob. He loved the young woman and spoke tenderly to her. So Shechem spoke to his father Hamor, saying, Get me this girl for my wife. Now Jacob heard that he had defiled his daughter Dinah, but his sons were with his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. And Hamor, the father of Shechem, went out to Jacob to speak with him. The sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. But Hamor spoke with them, saying, The soul of my son Shechem longs for your daughter. Please give her to him to be his wife. Make marriages with us. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Shechem also said to her father and to her brothers, Let me find favor in your eyes and whatever you say to me I will give. Ask me for as great a bride price and gift as you will and I will give whatever you say to me. Only give me the young woman to be my wife." The sons of Jacob answered Shechem and his father Hamor deceitfully because they had defiled, he had defiled their sister Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Then we will give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you and become one people. But if you will not listen to us and be circumcised, then we will take our daughter and we will be gone. Their words please Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. Now he was the most honored of all his father's house. So Hamor and his son Shechem came to the gate of their city and spoke to the men of their city, saying, These men are at peace with us. Let them dwell in the land and trade in it. For behold, the land is large enough for them. Let us take their daughters as wives and let us give them our daughters. Only on this condition will the men agree to dwell with us to become one people when every male among us is circumcised as they are circumcised. Will not their livestock, their property, and all their beasts be ours? Only let us agree with them, and they will dwell with us. And all who went out of the gate of the city, of his city, listened to Hamor 
and his son Shechem, and every male was circumcised, all who went out of the gate of his city. On the third day, when they were sore, two of the sons of Jacob, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks and their herds, their donkeys, and whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses they captured and plundered. Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi, You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Oh Lord, your word is a rich treasury of truth and wisdom. Your word is strong, it's sure, it's trustworthy. Your word tells us the way it was and the way it is. Your word was written by your spirit by the use of divinely inspired authors. Your word also comes with the promise of your Holy Spirit's help for us. Please now, O Lord, at this time and during this consideration of your word, give us special help by your Holy Spirit so that we might understand what we are reading and to discern the way it should shape our thinking and our actions. I pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. Quite a passage. You know, many of you have lived in Kansas City a long time, as have I. I'm 51 now, and I've spent over 30 years in Kansas and 26-plus in Kansas City. Yet, if you get to talking to me or I get to talking to you, it doesn't take long, if we've just met, for me to ask you or you to ask me, where are you from? What do you mean where I'm from? I've been here 30-plus years. No, what you mean is where did you grow up? That's what I mean for you. I was just at a birthday party yesterday, got to talk to people I knew, but it doesn't take long, even with people you know, that, hey, I'm from Brazil, I'm from Ecuador, I'm from Iowa. All these exotic places come out when you're talking to people. When you, you want to know where they grew up. Why? That's where they were shaped. That's where you were shaped. I don't care how old you are. When you say, when someone asks where are you from, you mean those years that were your shaping years. From the time you were probably zero to 20. That's where you say you're from, even if you've lived somewhere else 60 years after it. Shaping influence comes from those years. And the shaping influence for Jacob's sons, for his children, was not Bethel. Not the place where Isaac was and where he was promised ultimately. It was in Canaan. It was in Shechem. And this is because Jacob chose that for his family. Jacob chose to not go to where God told him. Instead, go to where it looked a little better, a little more attractive, more opportunity for me here. Not accounting for how much impact living in Shechem among the Canaanites, how much impact that would actually have in the lives of his children and in the lives of the rest of the patriarchs in the early church, the early church that would come and spring out of this leading up into the era under captivity in Egypt. You know, the people of God in every era 
have struggled with their relationship, our relationship with the world, with the culture around us. Many debates break out about how exactly we should relate as Christians with the culture. In the era of the patriarchs, God wanted there to be a distinct separation that grew between the newly forming people of God and the tribes and the clans around them. Remember how it was in the ancient Near East. There were no clearly defined borders. There were just tribes and clans that grew and multiplied in people and in stuff. And they would grow into other tribes and clans and there would be battles sometimes. Or there would be mergers where they become one with the more powerful clan or tribe. Canaan was littered with these kinds of tribes and clans. The Hittites, the Parasites, the, the Jebusites, and so forth. They're all clans. Their cities aren't made of tens of thousands of people. These are dozens of people, large companies, tribes. And they would merge sometimes or they'd find common places to carry out their commerce. This is where the city gates were constructed. There weren't central governments with central laws. It was the law of the tribes. This is where the people of God got their start in the patriarchal era. The patriarchs were supposed to marry within their clan. You remember Abraham didn't want Isaac to marry a Canaanite because the Canaanites had a deep-seated pagan religion that they practiced. They were diverse among the different clans, but they all had the same kind of degraded practices, even sacrifice of people, um, all sorts of things. And so you understand why Abraham didn't want Isaac to marry there, and Isaac didn't want Jacob to marry there either. Go to our clans, go within our clan. That's what we should do at this stage of redemption history. And every time the people of God failed to keep a healthy distance, they ended up worshiping the gods of those nations. We see it throughout Israel's history. It even starts here. We discover this to be the case. In just a short time in Shechem, 10 years, they already look more like the Perizzites who were there, the Shechemites, than they do God's chosen people. Didn't take long at all for Jacob's family under this shaping influence of the Shechemites to find their identity to be starting to blend in with the people of the land. Jacob failed to go to the homeland that God had commanded him to go. Twenty years under Laban at Padam Aram, he meets God in that wrestling match. God promises to go with him to go back to Bethel, where he put up the first altar, meeting God there. That's where he was supposed to go, but instead he settles in Shechem. Some 10 years there. The children would have been from toddler age to 10 or 11 years old. Their very shaping years happened in Shechem. Dinah would have been 15 to 17 years old, and she grew up in Shechem. I want us to look at this difficult story at the, the little picture first, the little picture being the specifics of the event itself. Um, we see the result of several shaping influences that were present in Jacob's parenting, his life, his household, his, his situation where they lived. And we could see all of this feed into this tragic, truly tragic episode. Then we'll back off just for a moment. It won't take long to do this, but gather the big picture once again. The big, pic picture, the big picture we gain is about God's plan to bring Messiah eventually. And we can discover once again that plan... The fulfillment of his promise is not dependent on our faithfulness, completely upon his. We can draw no other conclusion when we look at the faithlessness and the wickedness that people who profess to be his people, how they act. Now, let's 
go to the little picture first because we just read this passage. Lots of disturbing stuff. Let's get into the passage a bit and try to understand what we are reading. Now, what we see is Jacob's basic dysfunctional headship over his family. I got to tell you, I was praising the Lord that this is not Father's Day for this message. Um, You know I'm not a big Father's Day, Mother's Day preacher. Um, I'm maintaining my record of 25 years of never preaching a sermon on either of those. But boy, this would have been awkward if it was next week. So I'm happy for that. Thank you, Lord. Because this is a story about failed headship, failed leadership in the home. There's more to it than that, but it's something we can all recognize and hopefully humbly uh, ask the Lord to help us in our blind spots that uh, may not be as extreme as what we see here, but nevertheless we know to be true to some degree of our own, our own lives. Now, think about the dysfunctional family leadership that Jacob has already been exercising to this point. It starts with his taking of multiple wives. This is not the, the plan of God. This was a custom of the day that gets wrapped into this. Yes, God's sovereign over it all. He can, nothing thwarts his plan, but sinful actions still have immediate pain associated. And taking on multiple wives means, by definition, multiple unhappy wives. There's no way they could be fulfilled in the marital relationship with this division with their husband and he with them. So none of the relationships could have been good, even though he so favored Rachel. With multiple unhappy wives, that means you have unhappy moms. And then you have children born to the different mothers who know they rank differently with Jacob. There's no question in their mind who he favors. And the oldest sons are mostly to Leah. And so they know how Jacob treats Leah. And Dinah is the daughter of Leah. I would gather that Jacob probably didn't have much of a relationship with Leah, probably none to speak of with Dinah. It's a terrible, painful, dysfunctional situation from the get-go, even before they get to this episode. All these rivalries, no doubt, between the children. Verse 1 gives us a little hint of this. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, see how it's mentioned? It's Leah, not Rachel whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. She's identified in a way that's different from the other children. It gives us a little bit of an eye to the dynamic that is unfolding. But I want you to notice something else that no doubt stems from this dysfunction in Jacob's leadership with regard to his daughter. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land. She seems to have an unhealthy interest in the Canaanite world around her. And I'm not going to put all the blame at Dinah's feet. She's 15 to 17. Clearly, she's looking for something. She's not getting there. Candlish, the Scottish commentator, said, this is not a solitary incident that's indicated here. It's a customary course of conduct that's being described with Dinah, no doubt. Jacob practiced very poor relational management over his household. This will come up again in his life story. It created all sorts of emotional unrest. His lack of equal attention made rivalries between his wives and their children and so on. It's probably safe to say, I don't think I'm over-psychologizing, to say that Dinah didn't have much of a relationship with her father. That she seeks company and acceptance of the women of the land instead of her family. Now, let's notice some other features of Jacob's dysfunction so we can gather what's happening here. He suffers a definite loss of spiritual focus and priority along the way. 
I mentioned it already in, in, the, in the introductory comments. When Jacob met God at Bethel some 20 years prior to getting to Shechem, and then met God again at Peniel with the wrestling, he was a changed man with a changed name. 20 years in Padam Aram, now he's ready to pilgrim back with all this stuff that God had blessed him with, a clear command from God to go to Bethel. That's his spiritual pilgrimage. I'm going to go back where God's going to fulfill the promise to make of me a great nation. And that's where I need to go. You had one simple thing, go to Bethel, back to where you came from. That was the commitment you made when you left. That's what God told you to do when you went back. Take up your spiritual pilgrimage. Yet, along the way to Bethel, he loses focus. Something catches his eye and he stops. He probably thought, just for a little while, let me just check this out. He gets stalled. Brothers and sisters, bad things happen when we lose our spiritual focus. We suffer, and then those we're responsible for suffer. When we make things of the world too important in our priority and in our life living, it affects our whole household. It could be something as subtle as pursuing your vocation to the degree that the vocation transplants devotion to God first. Vocation's important. It's a calling. God's given to you. But sometimes we'll use it as an excuse to not spend time with our families or spend time in discipleship with our families or among our church family because we got so much work we got to do. Once I get to this point in this stage in this level, then I can spend time with this. It's kind of the cats in the cradle thing. When we lose spiritual focus, we settle for lesser things. They don't seem lesser at the moment. We think they're great. They're worth stopping for, but we find out they're not. Now Jacob heard, verse 5, that he had defiled his daughter Dinah. Now I want you to notice the dullness of his spirituality here. He hears about what happened to his daughter Dinah. Now I know I can predict what many of you would have done, what I might have done. I don't think it'd be what he did here. Maybe a lot of things, but his dullness here. He doesn't react, doesn't go to Hamor, which I think is what he ought to do right away. It says, but his sons were with livestock in, his livestock in the field, so Jacob held his peace until they came. There's this, you could sense this distance and this disconnect and this passivity about his headship and leadership and protection of his family when he acts so poorly here. It's alarming how passive he is. There should be no hesitation on his part to personally confront the situation. Not like the sons do. It's not equal. There's not equity in what the sons did compared to the crime. But something more should have happened. But that's where Jacob was. And you can't, you can't tell me the family doesn't sense that apathy that Jacob has about this situation or other situations. This is just a little picture in. All of this comes because Jacob chose to put his family in a very, very dangerous environment, especially for raising a, a young family. Candlish says this, Surely Jacob is to be blamed. It is one of the untoward consequences of his halting on the border of Canaan and stopping short of Bethel that his family are in such circumstances of exposure to temptation as might not otherwise have surrounded them. Jacob and his, has his family in this spiritually hostile environment during the key shaping influence years of their lives. The children of Jacob grew up in Shechem. So maybe 30 years from then, they're out tending the sheep in Israel somewhere, 
further north towards where Bethel is, and they come across a Midianite who's passing through, and they get talking. They don't say, we're from here. We grew up in Shechem. That's what would be said by the sons of Jacob, the children of Jacob. It's always dangerous to be in a godless environment, but it is particularly dangerous for developing young people. Jacob's family grew up in Shechem in the land of Canaan. These were a pagan people with outlooks and practices that were sacrilegious to anyone who believed in the true and living God, even uncivil in many ways. These were not a people who feared the God of Jacob, yet Jacob had his young family there presuming upon the protections of God, even though he was standing in disobedience in a land he shouldn't have been. I think here we could pause to say that there is a general principle of warning to families and parents. We cannot be naive about the shaping influences that are in our lives as adults. You know, where do you spend the bulk of your hours? And as adults, as mature people who seek Christ, how do you offset spending so much time in one arena so that you, your devotion to the Lord stays strong? And I'm sure you think about this. We all do. And we know, hey, maybe too much time here, too much time in this or that. And we find ways to offset that. One way is we come to be with the people of God. We grow in our strength this way to set our minds right at the beginning of a new week because we have to navigate in this world. It's not a call to, to separating yourself out utterly and having no connection. We can't live that way. And as adults, you know that it's tough, it's difficult. We all know it's a challenge. For adults, though, you have some discernment about you, some way to draw upon encouragement and strength from others. But as it relates to our children, like the situation Jacob has his children in, if I could be so straightforward with you, if our children spend more time with people of the world than people of God, we are absolutely setting them up for spiritually damaging, shaping influences, are we not? Are we different? Are we better than Jacob's kids in those situations? Adults struggle enough to discern the influences of the world, but children and young people, even young adults who don't have the discernment necessarily yet, it's not cultivated yet, to combat these ideas, and they get thrust upon them in a way that most of us don't know. If you're my age, we have no clue what our children have to deal with. Nothing. We are so dinosaur about the, what's happening to, to them now, what they face. Our challenge is so much more difficult in this digital world. Giving a child, for instance, full access to the world on their phones long before they're discerning enough to process what they're seeing, it will work to lure them away from devotion to God. You might read the passage in our day, now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had born to Jacob, went out to see the women of the land that she had been following on TikTok for months. It's a tragic result, what happens here in the lives of all the people involved, including the people of the land. And it stems from this very cultivation that we're seeing happen. And it happens most brutally to Dinah, who's violated this tragic result begins with her. It says in verse 2 that Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, Hamor was the tribal prince of the area. His son, Shechem, named after the place in which they lived, probably a greater ancestor, and he was named after them, and the, the city-state was called that as well. He saw her and seized her and lay with her and humiliated her. He raped her. Now, this is grotesque to us, abhorrent to us, 
but there are places in the world and periods in time in history where this was a tactic taken by one people group to subjugate another people group or to force them into marital relationships. It even still happens in tribes in, on the, in the world today. That's a bit of what he's doing, and he talks about this affection for her, which, again, it makes us sick when we think of how this unfolds, and rightfully so. It should offend our senses. But this is what he's doing. He's employing this mechanism of the day. So he tells his father, I want to marry this girl. I want her. Now, they keep her. They don't, she doesn't get to go back to her family. The whole time they have her. And this is in the minds of Jacob's sons for sure. Now, it's interesting what the people plot to do with regard to Jacob and his family. Now, I want to say this to you carefully because I know that it's not an exact one-for-one Old Testament Israel under a theocracy with the church wherever the church is in America or another country. They're not identical. But there are some general principles we can draw from. And one has to do with the way the world looks at the people of God. In generally speaking, the world does not want to assimilate the church to learn from the church. It wants to take from the church whatever it can and basically stop you from looking like the church, which brings conviction to what they may be doing. It's not a, a friendly relationship on the straightforward. And that's what you have here. Listen to how they talk about this union they can have with Jacob. It's not so that Jacob could bring his God to us and we can learn about Jacob's God because that would have been fine. That's something Israel was even supposed to do at some level. By being the shining light of Yahweh, there would be some who would proselytize. Ultimately, when Christ comes, the nations would come to Christ. So their distinction was important at this level. But notice in verse 9 what they pitch to Jacob. Make marriages with us, Israelites. Give your daughters to us and take our daughters for yourselves. You shall dwell with us, and the land shall be open to you. Dwell and trade in it and get property in it. Christians, just be with the rest of us in the world. Just, come, just be with us. We could all really be one. Don't have your, those distinct, weird, archaic ideas you have. Get property in it. Then Shechem, the son, said to his father and brothers, let me find favor in your eyes. It's just so appeasing, so, so conciliatory. Come on, let's just all be one in this. Ask any price, and I will give it to you, whatever you ask. Just let me have her as my wife. Now, the true intentions of the Shechemites, and I would suggest to you the true intentions of the world when they make a pitch to Christians to, hey, can you give up some of these extreme ideas you have that we don't like? Just get rid of those Christian things, and then you can be with us. Verse 23, as Hamor goes to the, the other men of the city, and this isn't a massive city with hundreds and hundreds of people. I'm not trying to... Uh, downgrade what happens in the massacre, but these are tribal areas. These are dozens, not hundreds of people who come and meet at the city gate. And then he says to them, hey, you need to go through with this, what seems to be an extreme thing to do, but we're going to gain. Verse 23, will not their livestock, their property, and their beasts be ours? Hey, if we do this thing, it's brutal up front, but eventually we're going to get all their stuff. Only let us agree with them and they will dwell with us. The world just wants to assimilate us, take away any of the distinctions that are ours in Christ, and have us for themselves, and we are no longer are in Christ at all. We look just like it. This is a common tactic that happens in the Old Testament, and the New Testament writers warn us of the same kind of idea. And then the brothers, on the other hand, aren't they, they respond with treachery that's murderous. Sure, their justice is affected, and it ought to be, but 
where they go with it is not the equity of God. They make an agreement in bad faith. Now we know where it comes from, anger. Verse 7, the sons of Jacob had come in from the field as soon as they heard of it, and the men were indignant and very angry because, because he had done an outrageous thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, for such a thing must not be done. Yes, they're, they're, they're morally affronted, and they ought to be, by the violation that happened to Dinah. There needs to be some payment, no question for this, some punishment meted out. But the anger of man never accomplishes the righteousness of God. And then Shechem says in verse 12, just name the, the, the bride price. I'll give whatever. I just want this woman to be my wife. And now verse 13. By the way, where do you think the sons gained their ability to be so sneaky? The sons of Jacob answered Shechem, verse 13, and his father Hamor deceitfully because he had defiled their sister Dinah. Their justification was what had happened to Dinah. They said to them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister to one who is uncircumcised, for that would be a disgrace to us. Remember what circumcision was. It was given as a sign of God's covenant promise to the people of Israel. It was a sign of God's favor upon them. It was a way of symbolizing, um, because of the nature of the actual act, it related to the seed that comes from people. And by this act of circumcision, it draws attention to the fact that God has promised a seed eventually. This is the promise of God, which would be a blessing to the nations eventually too, when the seed ultimately comes in the person of the Messiah. So they're taking this sacred covenant sign of circumcision and using it to manipulate people, to murder them. The levels of sacrilege that stacks upon other levels is almost too much to read. And they use this. It'd be a disgrace if you uncircumcised nation, this people of Canaan, would intermingle with us and not bear the sign of our God. Verse 15, only on this condition will we agree with you that you will become as we are by every male among you being circumcised. Now, you might say, are the Shechemites real smart here? Like, what, is this a little much? It is, but this, was hap- this happened in other nations too. Israel wasn't the first nation to have this as a sign. So it wasn't completely foreign to them, and they knew this to be true about the Israelites. Then, verse 16, once you do this, we'll give our daughters to you, and we will take your daughters to ourselves, and we will dwell with you. And notice what it says, and become with you one people. We'll assimilate. But if you don't listen to us and be circumcised and we'll take our daughter, we'll be done. We'll be gone. Now, verse 18, the words pleased Hamor and Hamor's son Shechem. And the young man did not delay to do the thing because he delighted in Jacob's daughter. And the men follow suit. The key men in the city follow suit. And they use the sacred sign of God's promise in an awful way. Kent Hughes said, Jacob's sons had no intention of extending their religious influence with this giving of the sign much less the knowledge of God. It was genocide, not evangelism, that was in their mind. The irony of their deceit is supremely grotesque in that the aspect of Shechem that used to perpetu- was used to perpetuate the crime against Dinah would serve to effect his death. Multiple layers and levels here. And the brothers carry out a murderous rampage. Verse 25. On the third day, when they would have been at the height of their soreness and agony, 
really truly incapacitated, not able to defend themselves. Two of the sons of Jacob, these weren't the oldest, Reuben's the oldest, but Jacob and Simeon, the next two oldest, or excuse me, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, verse 25, took their swords and came against the city while it felt secure, the moment was right, and killed all the males. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the sword and took Dinah out of Shechem's house and went away. The sons of Jacob came upon the slain and plundered the city because they had defiled their sister. They took their flocks, their herds, their donkeys, whatever was in the city and in the field, all their wealth, all their little ones and their wives, all that was in the houses and captured, they captured and plundered. Kent Hughes says it well again. This shocks all of us. But it was just as shocking for the ancient readers as it is to modern ears and eyes. The ancient law of eye for an eye had been trampled by Simeon and Levi. There had been no equity here about what they meted out as punishment. Only exponential revenge. The brothers' actions offend every convention. And notice Jacob's response to put a bit of a capstone on his failure. No rebuke for the massacre. No rebuke on the level of its inherent evil. Instead, Jacob is concerned for his reputation among the Canaanites. That's what he's always cared about. This is what has gotten into Jacob. Verse 30, Jacob says to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble, and notice how many times he says me or I. You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites and the Perizzites. My numbers are few. And if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. They said, almost in murmuring tone, should he treat our sister like a prostitute? That's their response. Jacob cares too much about the opinions of the people of the land. This is largely what causes him to parent as he does. He fears people more than he fears God, his God. Candlish, once again, Jacob's reaction is a feeble one. It indicated no high principle, no holy indignation, no righteous wrath. It turns mainly on the considerations of selfish policy and prudence for himself. He sees what his sons have done as more of a blunder than a crime committed, and it may lead to unpleasant things for him. You have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land. My numbers are few. They could come against me and destroy me and my household. It's going to make life rough for me. Never mind what he had done, the heinous act that they had perpetrated. The big picture, just for a moment, back away from the little picture we've just seen, as disturbing as it is. Does this not tell us that the fulfillment of God's promises and plans are not wrapped up in the faithfulness of his people, not wrapped up in Abraham, not wrapped up in Isaac, not wrapped up in Jacob, and not wrapped up in anyone here? The fulfillment of the promises of God's grace through the coming Messiah, the one who's come from our perspective, is all because of his grace, utterly dependent. He's the hero of the whole of the Bible. Nobody could fabricate a story like this to have you place your faith in the founders of the faith. Only one founder, God himself through his Christ, and we see the sinfulness of sin on full display utter dependence on God's grace for life and for salvation. God is the one who sovereignly guides everything. Even when man sins like this, 
God is not thwarted in his ultimate plan. It's true. Our failures in the here and the now cost us dearly in the scope of our experience and in our lives. But they do not change the faithfulness and the commitment of God to ultimately fulfill his covenant promises. The little picture, the result of these shaping influences in Jacob's life and his family's life, leads to this tragic episode. The big picture, the fulfillment of God's saving plan, is totally dependent on his faithfulness, not on ours. I want to conclude with some overarching observations that I think bear a connection to our approach to the world around us as the people of God living now in a a different context, uh, both in relationship to the finished work of Christ and in where we live in the world, wherever the church finds herself. We acknowledge it's a struggle, and Christians have debated for many, many years, how do Christians interact with the culture, the world around us? We know there are extremes where some would say we should be just like the world so we can somehow win them, but then you lose all your identity and ability and credibility. Some would say completely be separate, pull out altogether. The problem is the Scripture describes the people of God as salt and light, a preserving agent and a light that is able to shine the truth of Christ. So we know there has to be relationship. We have to have some relationship. I think it's important, though, to recognize what happens here and what we see happen in the life of Israel and what the New Testament authors warn Christians about. Ancient Israel's relationship to the world as they were forming an identity, while not identical to the church's relationship with the world in our day, has some principles. Salt and light, not assimilated by the culture. Is my life more about pleasing God as he lays it out for me or fitting in with the world that I find myself in, or the culture I am in. The New Testament describes us as exiles in a strange land, yet we're still to be interacting. But yet, we're strangers because we're strangers in a strange land to us. So, there will be, it's not abnormal, there will be tensions for you as a Christian as you navigate this world, in this culture, in this life. Do we care more about the world accepting us than being God's peculiar people? Make no no, no, uh, mistake. The world is trying to assimilate you, trying to assimilate me. They want a merger. But God doesn't want us to do this. We can't be a blessing to those who need a Savior if we look like those who are still not saved. We can't be a blessing to the world if we become like those who need the gospel. Am I more concerned with how sin offends God or how I seem offensive to other people? Am I entangled with the world in such a way that the world is actually shaping me rather than me shining in that world? Don't build too close to Shechem is the point. I think an illustration that shows how we might relate with the world around us for those who are Christians, for the church, Think of an enga- a woman who is engaged to be married to a man who she loves, her groom. Now, that woman clearly marks herself as devoted to her future groom because he gives her a ring. And she wears that ring to let people know she's engaged. She's devoted to some. Now, she still relates with people around her, even other men. She's cordial, she's helpful, but she's careful. She's mindful of her commitment to be married soon. She's wary of too much entanglement with others, especially other men. She keeps a safe distance without being rude 
or a recluse. She wants to be a blessing to people around her. But she knows to whom she is betrothed. And she's not bashful in letting the world know to whom she is devoted. That's the church in Jesus Christ. We live in this world. We want to be helpful. We want to love people. But we want them to know that Jesus is our groom. We're engaged to him. So we've got to be faithful to him. And the world will want you to be unfaithful to him. And we say, no, he's purchased us everything. We're devoted to him. We're not to cheat on Christ with a devotion to the world. We're to relate with others, to serve as salt and light to the world around us. We want them to be part of the bride too. But we're careful and mindful that we belong to Christ. Ephesians 5 describes the church as Christ's bride using the marriage analogy. So this is not a stretch in telling you this is how we relate to the world. Paul wrote to the new Christians at Corinth. Most of them were new Christians in Corinth. He says in his return letter, the second book of Corinthians, For I feel a divine jealousy for you, Corinthians, since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. Remember who you're betrothed to. He's who you ought to live your life according to. He said, though, but I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from, from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. I'm afraid you're going to listen to those who are trying to pull you away. And be sure, the world does not want to marry you to make your life better. It doesn't know anything other than to destroy you. That's what it wants. That's what the world ultimately seeks to do. Well, I'm being destroyed, I'm going to take everybody with me kind of mindset, including people who seem to be devoted to Christ, at least by profession. The book of Revelation really captures it the best. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints." The story that we just read is a difficult one to read for sure, but it's here for divine purpose. God wants us to study this and mine from it what it is he has for us to be warned concerning, but also what it drives us towards. When you read a passage like this, you are driven to Christ. You are driven to your groom. We are driven to our Savior, and it accomplishes a great purpose in this for sure bow together as I lead us in prayer. O Lord, all scripture is breathed out by you and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that we, your people, may be complete, equipped for every good work. Genesis 34 has much for us to contemplate, O Lord. Genesis 34, above all else, makes us long for the righteousness and the salvation of our bridegroom Christ. It is in his name that I pray, amen.